invite you to follow along as I read. Keep this passage open our entire time together as you'll follow along during the sermon as well. And when I'm done reading this, I'll say something like, this is God's word. If you agree that this is God's gift to us, would you join me to say thanks be to God? John eleven twenty eight to 44. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. There's an old Walgreens commercial that came out a few years ago, and it was released around Valentine's Day. It's a scene of what I assume is a husband and a wife, and they're in their kitchen, I think, getting started for the day. And the wife sort of eagerly suggests to her husband, hey, do you know what today is? And he replies, well, of course I do. Well, she asks him, well, did you give me a present? He says, no. Did you give me flowers? He says, no. Did you give me a card? No, I didn't. But, you know, I meant to. You meant to, she says. She says, yeah, yeah, I meant to. I mean, I really thought about it. She says, you thought about it? Oh, that's great. I, I-, I love you. And then the commercial closes with a narrator saying, if only it really was the thought that counts. (laughs) You know, I I think this resonates with us because all of us can sense love that's insincere and inconsistent. All of you can recognize actions that aren't backed up with words and words that aren't backed up with actions. In the culmination of the story of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, Jesus will show more about who he is. He's going to show us more about how he relates to his people. Jesus is going to show us he's not some street-performing miracle worker who's out just to impress others, while his heart remains detached and cold to them. Neither is Jesus some sentimental pushover who disappears when you need him the most. John eleven twenty-eight 28 to 44 shows a complete 
and beautiful picture of Jesus. That as the theologians put it, he is transcendent, high above us, infinite in power, and he is also uh, imminent, coming alongside us in solidarity. Maybe to put that in street-level language, Jesus cares and Jesus can do something. Both of those together are deeply comforting. In fact, we could put, it, put this portion of God's word, summarize it in one sentence like this, that in Jesus, you have the friend whose presence is peace and the Lord whose word is power. So two movements for today's sermon roughly correspond to the two paragraphs of today's passage. Jesus cares and Jesus can do something. Well, Jesus cares, first of all. Let's take a little bit of a running start to remember what we covered last week. Last week, we saw Jesus arrive at the edge of a village that's called Bethany. And you remember that Bethany, it says, is about two miles away from Jerusalem, Israel's capital. Now, this is significant in part because that region uh, around Jerusalem People there tried to kill Jesus on three different occasions. But Jesus is adamant that when he hears his friend is sick, he's going to help him. Now, before he departs to go to Bethany, he tells his disciples that he is clear about what he's going to do there. That Lazarus isn't just sick, that Lazarus has actually died. And Jesus is going to raise up Lazarus from the dead, making Lazarus' death no more than a prolonged sleep. Now, last week we saw at the first news of Jesus' arrival, one of Lazarus' sisters, Martha, goes out to meet him. And meanwhile, his other sister, Mary, stays back in their house. We saw how Martha went to Jesus even with her messy and complicated faith that was shot through with questions and doubt and grief. She goes to him anyway and places that messy knot on Jesus' lap and Jesus begins to untangle it for her. Jesus takes Martha from her grief and from her faith that is just kind of faith generally and faith vaguely, and he takes her to faith specifically in him. He shows Martha that he's not just a teacher of the resurrection and eternal life. He is the power behind the resurrection and eternal life. And so by the end of our passage last week, the veil seems to lift from Martha's heart, and she gives one of the clearest professions of faith in Jesus in the entire Gospel of John. She says, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That brings us to where we are today in verse 28. Martha shows one of the first signs that you have really come to understand Jesus. She shows us one of the first signs that you have really come to believe in Jesus and have embraced Jesus. What does Martha do the first thing she believes in Jesus? She goes and tells somebody about him. She goes and tells her sister. She goes to her sister Mary, and in a crowded house of mourners, Martha wants to be a little bit more personal and private. And Martha tells her sister, simply, the teacher is looking for you. Seems to be an incidental detail, a very small one, one we would pass over if not careful. But I think right here is actually the first instance of Jesus's care in this passage. Right, last week we talked about two different options that you have for how to handle the mess and junk in your life. Two different paths. You can go that, the path of Martha, that everything could still be messed up, but you still go to Jesus and take it all to him. Or you can go to the path of Mary, that everything is messed up, but you just stare at it hopelessly and remain far from Jesus. 
Now, maybe you could really resonate with Mary's path like I can because you've gone down it so many times. It's just sort of your reflex, your default mode. But if this detail in verse 28 wasn't concluded, you and I might come to a wrong conclusion. You and I might be tempted to think that anybody who's gone down the merry path and just remained at home while Jesus is near, that Jesus no longer wants anything to do with me, that you and I are damaged goods. Maybe you think I went through a tough season. I effectively wanted nothing to do with the Lord. And now he's not going to want anything to do with me. I don't know everything that's going on in your life right now, but maybe you're in the middle of that type of season. You've been in a pattern of what it's amounted to, just ignoring God, just doing your own thing. And you've come to actually realize it. Maybe that's part of why you're in church, but you haven't really done anything about it because you're paralyzed. You're paralyzed in this thought that I failed, that I'm a bad Christian, and that's what the Lord wants nothing more to do with me. Friend, let verse 28 correct that way of thinking. Notice how this story doesn't continue for Mary. It doesn't continue with Mary coming to her senses and realizes, oh, I really blew it. Let me go back to Jesus. And then Jesus says, sorry, sister, you had your chance. No, that's not how it happens. Even before Mary has a chance to come to her senses, Jesus gets a message to her that he still cares about her. I'm looking for you, Mary. My friend, if you're on Mary's path in some way, Jesus is here and he's calling for you. You know, there's a new song that I think captures this so well, so beautifully. It's actually a song that's meant for children, but I love it. It's called Jesus Strong and Kind. You know, the first three reasons remind us of uh, why we should go to the Lord uh, ourselves. The uh, first verse goes like Jesus said that if I thirst, I should go to him. No one else can satisfy. I should go to him. The next verse goes like Jesus says that if I am weak, I should go to him. No one else can be my strength. I should go to him. Next verse says this. Jesus said that if I am scared, if I fear, I should go to him. No one else can be my shield. I should go to him. But the last verse, the last verse is my favorite. It shifts shifts the perspective a little bit. It says, Jesus says that if I am lost, he will come to me. And he showed me on that cross, he will come to me. And that's the mercy that Mary needs. That's the mercy that you and I need. That Jesus comes for failures and comes for sinners who have wanted nothing to do with him. And he says, I'm looking for you. Here's the first instance of Jesus's care. While Mary finally joins her sister, she leaves the house. No more delay. She's like jolted back to her senses and she's got a crowd of people behind her. Now I've been to enough funerals to make sense what happens next. I don't know if you've ever been waiting in line at a visitation or at a wake at a funeral and you see the family of the deceased at the end of the line and kind of a train of people in front of you. And in the distance, you could see the family at just the sight of certain people It makes them break down. No words are required. It's just there's that much of a connection with someone else that no words are necessary. You just sort of break down and cry as soon as you see them. And I think that's what happens to Mary here when she sees Jesus. There are no words. She just breaks down and falls at his feet. And she is overcome with emotion. And all that she can say is what her sister had previously said. That, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, like we said last week, that's a complicated statement. Because on the one hand, that's a favorable view of Jesus. Mary genuinely believes that Jesus could have prevented her brother's death. 
But on the other hand, it's kind of a bewildering statement from Mary. Jesus, why would you allow this to happen if you could have prevented it? And while Mary says the same thing as her sister Martha, unlike her sister Martha, this is all that Mary can muster to say through her tears. And John sort of zooms out the camera to show that it's not just Mary who's crying. It's this whole group of people who are crying. And if you understand a little bit of the background, cultural background of funerals in that day, you would appreciate this scene. You might remember that there are a couple indications that Mary and Martha and Lazarus's family are well off and influential. Right. It's not every village family that would have garnered this many people for a funeral. Right. Even in this passage, it's not every village family that could fit this many people in their own house. And in the next chapter, chapter 12, it's not every village family that could afford expensive ointment that Mary uses to anoint Jesus. So if they are a well-to-do family, then most well-to-do families in that time and place would put on a big production for a funeral. In fact, they would hire people who would mourn for them. Imagine that being your job. I, I, I go to funerals and I cry loudly. That's what was going on here. They would hire people to weep and wail. They would hire people to play instruments in a minor key. In fact, we see this in another place in the Gospels, Mark chapter 5, verse 41. At the death of Jairus' daughter, it says, Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. It's probably what's going on here, a commotion. And Jesus sees all this. Verse 33 says that he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. Now, that word deeply moved is sort of tough to translate. In other places uh, in, in the Greek language, it can be used to refer to uh, what's like horses snorting, right? So really what it is, it's, it's a word that communicates anger and outrage and indignation. And notice that John says this isn't a visible response. This is Jesus's inner reaction. Now, this won't be the only way Jesus responds to this scene, but it is a way Jesus responds to this scene. And believe it or not, This inner outrage is actually a way that Jesus cares about the people involved. Now, what on earth could Jesus actually be upset with or outraged at as he looks out at this scene of people weeping? Well, I think there are a couple possibilities of what Jesus could be outraged at. I'm helped here by commentator Don Carson. One possibility is just the rank and naked unbelief that's around him. Let me explain. You might remember the two ruling religious authorities of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were actually more influential. The Sadducees were the respected realists, the academics of the day. And the Bible says that the Sadducees didn't teach the resurrection of the dead. Effectively, they taught once you're dead, you're dead. That's it. These people are weeping like they really believe what the Sadducees teach that there is truly no hope after you die. That's the type of devastation that Jesus sees when he looks at these people weeping. weeping. People who grieve and are devastated and are inconsolable, and they are ignoring the Son of God who's right in front of them. Jesus could be seeing that and be outraged. Jesus could be seeing the effects of a fallen world and be outraged at it. You know, our rebellion against God has unleashed curse upon the creation. Go back and read Genesis chapter 3. It's a curse that involves hurt and devastation and disease and death and more. Now, you and I know this. When, when you see death unmasked, 
When you see death without the makeup and the Sunday best, without the $1,000 casket or more, you see that death is ugly. You see that death is anything but neutral. You see that death is anything but natural. When you and I see death deep down in you, you know that this isn't how it's supposed to be. The Bible actually calls death an enemy. Jesus is outraged inwardly at the hopeless unbelief around him and the effects of a fallen world around him. And you might ask, well, how is that outrage an expression of his care? Well, think about, think about it like this. This isn't original to me. You know that anger isn't the opposite of love. Anger is not the opposite of love. Indifference is the opposite of love. Think about how you go about your relationships. Sometimes you need to be angry. The opposite of love is just, I want nothing to do with you. I don't care anymore. Think about the funerals you've been to. Haven't you been to a funeral where people do pretty much anything to ignore Jesus? People crack jokes. People just tell stories. People refuse almost to reckon with the reality of Hebrews 9.27 that is appointed once for man to die and then face judgment. My friend, are you indifferent to that? How could you be indifferent to that if you believe that? Haven't you seen how death can devastate a family? How a tragic death of a mom or a dad or a son or a child or a daughter, how that can devastate a family? How can you see that and be indifferent toward it? No, it would be unloving to be indifferent. But like we said, this inner response isn't Jesus's only response. So he asked where they buried Lazarus. And as Jesus gets to the tomb, we get to the shortest verse of the Bible and maybe one of the most profound, that Jesus wept. Literally, this means that he shed tears. So Jesus might be outraged, but that doesn't mean that Jesus isn't compassionate. Believe it or not, friends, that you can be both. You can read this also in Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23, on and on and on it goes. Jesus is outraged at the rank hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees. And yet, how does chapter 20, 23 close, close? Jesus weeps over the scribes and Pharisees. For I think this is just lost in our day and age. That you can be outraged at something that is rightly outrageous. And you can still be compassionate and weep over those people. Can I get concrete with you for a moment? Think, what, what, what's, the, what's the headline topics? What are the most taboo lifestyles in our day and age? Let's talk about transgenderism. Transgenderism, we would say, according to the Bible, according to Genesis 1.27, is a violation of being made in the image of God. It's, it's, it's a moral right and wrong. And yet those people, each one of them, are made in the image of God. Do we love them enough to, to uphold what is right and wrong and to have compassion? Jesus cares. And he cares enough to pursue those who don't deserve it. He cares enough not to be indifferent to unbelief and pain. He cares enough to show compassion and sympathy to those around him. And before we go on, I want to make sure you know why Jesus's care is important. Jesus's care is important because it staves off a potential misunderstanding that you might have about him. Because you might read John chapter 11 and think, here is this cold-hearted puppet master 
who orchestrates this entire scene, who plays with these people and just ups the dramatic flair in order for him to show off. He lets this poor man die so that he can show off how big and great and strong he is. This part of John 11 reminds you that Jesus is not above this situation, indifferent and cold-hearted to it, but he steps down into this situation and loves these people in it. That Jesus is the same today. Jesus' care is important for you to know because it informs how you handle the pain in your life. It informs how you handle the pain in your life. I think there's this unspoken expectation in our circles of how we handle trials. Uh, we, say, we quote verses like, you know, count it all joy when you encounter trials of various kinds. The expectation is you, you're going through a hard time and you're just supposed to quote Romans 8.28. All things work together for good. I know it's going to work out, so I, I guess I sh- shouldn't be affected by this. But look at Jesus here. Jesus straight up says, I know how this is going to work out. And yet he still cries. Jesus never intends our certain hope in him to eliminate our current pain. He intends for it to steady us in our current pain, not to eliminate it. Jesus' care is important Because he expects you to care like he does. He expects you to care for people like he does. He expects you not to be indifferent. He expects you not to be cold and stoic. He expects you not to be distant. He expects you to step in. You are called to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. You know, I find it interesting that in the two sections of our passage, Jesus cares and Jesus can do something. Jesus shows his care by his actions and Jesus shows he can do something by his words. That's the reverse of what you and I might expect. I don't know if you're like me, because when you're trying to care for somebody, you put pressure on yourself, you know, especially me because I'm a pastor, I'm supposed to be good with words. You put pressure on yourself. I got to say this perfect insight that's just going to unlock this person's inner turmoil. You know, maybe our words can help people, but you won't go wrong to start where Jesus starts and start with your actions. Start with showing up, stepping in, communicating in some way to the people hurting around you that their hurt makes you hurt. It reminds me of the book of Job. Job loses everything. And when did his friends get in trouble? It's when they open their big fat mouths. They actually start off pretty well. They start off like Jesus does. Job chapter two says they they saw their friend and they sat with him on the ground for seven days and seven nights and no one said a word to him for they saw his suffering was very great. Verses 36 and 37, there are people around Jesus who see him weep and they try to explain it. So some people say, like, look at how much Jesus loves Lazarus. And, hey, that's true. Back in verse 5, we're told straight up, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. There are are others who look at what Jesus is doing, and they wonder, hey, this guy could have prevented all this in the first place. They argue from the greater to the lesser. They say, hey, if Jesus could heal blindness, surely he could have healed whatever illness that Lazarus had going on. That's true. 
But for the grains of truth that are in those explanations, there is something off about both of those explanations. Yes, Jesus loves Lazarus, but it seems to me these people wrongly conclude that Jesus is crying tears of devastation like everybody else. That Jesus is crying because, well, Lazarus is dead now and it's too late. And the other people, yes, Jesus could have prevented Lazarus' death, but these people imply that Jesus is powerless now that Lazarus is dead. What do these explanations have in common? They say, yeah, Jesus cares. We see it, but Jesus can't do anything about it right now. And Jesus is going to show it's not true. That he cares and he can do something. And what he does is surrounds around what he says. He speaks five different times from verses 38 to 44. Jesus says first, take away the stone. Now, a lot of people in that time were buried in caves. Sometimes these caves would be natural. Sometimes these caves would be hewn out of a rock. These caves would often contain multiple tombs and be sealed with a heavy stone. We can't help but notice a little bit of foreshadowing on John's part for what will happen to Jesus. So Jesus is at the cave and he says, take away the stone. Now, if you just think about it, you don't have to think about it too hardly. What Jesus is about to do, he's about to speak and a dead man's gonna come to life. Couldn't he have just spoken? Stone, roll away. And poof, there it goes. Why does he get people involved with this? It doesn't tell us directly, but maybe a couple explanations. The old English pastor, J.C. Ryle, gives one possibility. He says, everyone who lent a hand to lift this huge stone and remove it would remember that and be a witness Every guy who helped move that stone say, hey, I helped lift it. This was no trick. I looked in that grave. I smelled Lazarus's stinky body. Why does Jesus say, you tell the people, take away the stone? Why would he do this? He could just say, stone be gone away. Maybe another possible reason that Jesus is just gracious. He is gracious to involve people in carrying out his will. You know, think about what you and I are capable of. You can't speak and give life to dead people. (laughs) But you know what you can do? You can put people in contact with a person who does speak and give life to dead people. You and I can't do what Jesus does, and apart from Jesus, you and I can do nothing. But that doesn't mean that you and I are idle. And Jesus is gracious to use us. He's gracious to use us to take away stones. Now, he says this, and Martha initially protests at Jesus' words. She doesn't want her brother's body disturbed. Uh, so she tells Jesus, listen, like, if all of you want to do is weep over his body, it's kind of too late for that, Jesus. But Jesus clarifies for Martha. He says, secondly, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Now, to Martha's credit, Jesus never exactly specified when he would raise her brother from the dead. To her credit. This seems to be Jesus' way of reassuring Martha. Hey, Martha, remember when I said I was going to raise your brother from the dead? This is what I'm doing right now. It's it's Jesus' way of reassuring Martha. Martha, I know what I'm doing doesn't make sense to you, but trust me. What I'm about to do will show you how powerful and great and good God is. You know, what Jesus says here, the way that he reassures Martha reminds me of that memorable line from Psalm 23, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. How does God reassure you 
in those moments, in those deep and dark moments when you can't see your hand in front of you, where nothing around you makes sense? How does God reassure you? Does he reassure you through your sight? Does it go on to say, when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm just going to take you up on a mountain 30,000 foot level and show you the whole path, show you all the twists and turns. I'm going to show you the end, how it all works out. And you're going to be fine. No. What does it say? When you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. He doesn't reassure you with your sight. He reassures you with his presence. He says, trust me. So that you walk not by sight, but by faith in him. That's the same thing he's doing for Martha. Now, before the headline words, Jesus prays. He says, thirdly, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they might believe that you sent me. This is sort of Jesus's preface before the big event. It's his explanation. He wants the people around him to know that what they're about to see doesn't come from a mere prophet. It doesn't come from a mere good teacher. It doesn't come from a rogue agent. It comes from one who delights in God the Father's purposes. He makes it clear to the people around him that what they are about to see comes from the very Son of God, the one who is sent by the Father and the one who is equal to the Father. So Jesus cares, and Jesus can do something, and he does something by speaking, and he speaks for a fourth time. Here it is, the headliner, Lazarus, come out. The same word that brought life out of nothing brings life out of death. You know, many have pointed out that if Jesus wasn't specific, if he had just with a loud voice said, come out, then all the tombs would have been empty that day. I love that. But I want you to look really carefully at just the simple statement. Lazarus, come out. Do you notice what Jesus doesn't tell Lazarus? Jesus doesn't tell Lazarus, hey, Lazarus, buddy, You just got to find it deep within yourself to come up out of that grave. Lazarus, listen, if you just work hard enough, Lazarus, if you just believe in yourself, anything's possible. You can come out. That would be ridiculous. Lazarus contributes nothing to his new life. He doesn't give life to himself. John is clear. Lazarus was dead. How does he refer to Lazarus over and over again? The dead man. And Jesus spoke and Lazarus lived. You might say, well, this is all well and good for Lazarus, but what about me? This is what Jesus does for him. What does he do for me? Well, I'm not the first to notice that what's true of Lazarus physically is true of you and me spiritually. Ephesians 2, 1, you are dead in your transgressions and sin. You know, this is a different message from the culture you're going to hear around you. You know, the culture around you wants to convince you basically that your biggest need is just to be nice. Just to be a better person. In his excellent book, Conversion, How God Creates a People, Pastor Michael Lawrence explains why that message is appealing. And he explains the assumptions behind that way of thinking. He says to be a nice person, to be a good person, to be a person who's becoming a better person is to feel good about yourself. It allows you to commend yourself to other people. It allows you to even commend yourself to God. It gives you the ability to vindicate your life to whoever's asking. That's appealing. But this way of thinking assumes that you have it in you to do whatever you need in order to vindicate yourself before God. 
It assumes that God is the kind of God who is pleased with your best efforts. And just be honest, because you and I have not given our best effort. And it assumes that the whole point of religion is to help you just become a better person. You know, the point of Christianity isn't first to make you feel better about yourself. The point of Christianity is to reconcile you to God. It's to make you right with God. And no matter how nice you are, no matter how much you try, it will never be enough. And I bet your deep level anxiety and insecurity that you have to compensate for tells you that. That you can no more produce the spiritual life you need to be right with God than Lazarus could produce the physical life he needed to walk out of that grave. So what you need isn't for God to change and bend his standards and make an exception for you. You need, to God, you need God to bend down to you in grace. You need the word about his son. Church, remember this. What people need most from us isn't to entertain them, isn't to tell them who to vote for. What people need the most from us is the good news about Jesus Christ. He is the one who achieved what you never could achieve. Jesus wasn't just nice. Jesus was perfect. The same one who raised Lazarus from the dead was put to death and was buried in the tomb. And it was so your punishment would be paid. It's so that the death you deserved would be crushed. And to prove that God accepted his sacrifice, he raised Jesus from the dead. So my friend, turn from just being nice and trusting in your own way, trusting in your own ability, and put your faith in Jesus Christ. And you won't just be made nice, you'll be made new. You won't just be made like Lazarus, you'll be made like Jesus. You'll be alive with him forevermore. And it won't be the end of it either. Just like it wasn't the end for Lazarus, the last thing that Jesus said is to unbind him and let him go. Now, uh, historians observe that Lazarus would have been wrapped in such a way that he might have been able to hop and shuffle around, but he couldn't really walk. So I think this last statement, we get a picture that Jesus does more than give us life. Jesus breaks the chains of our own life. And for those who trust in Jesus, he doesn't just bear the penalty of their sin, he breaks the power of their sin. This is a picture, a small picture, that if Jesus has made you alive, then you shouldn't walk around in the grave clothes of your old way of life anymore. That your way of life should look a lot more like his. And it's not just that you should do this. That's the good news is that you can do this. You are able to walk in the new life that Christ has given you. You have his life-giving word and his life-giving spirit. Give yourself to these things and fuel your new life in Christ. Friends, behold your God, the one who cares and the one who can do something. The one who loves both in word and in deed. The friend who sticks closer than a brother and the sovereign Lord who has all authority in heaven and earth. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your mercy and grace to come to those who wanted nothing to do with you and to show us compassion, to care enough to address our sin and not be indifferent toward it, to care enough to take that sin upon yourself, dying in our place. And we praise you for your power and your victory over sin and the grave. We find all of our joy and our rest and our peace, not in ourselves, but in you. We praise you. In your beautiful name we pray. Amen.